Welcome to BFR Radio, a podcast dedicated to all things blood flow restriction training. This podcast is proudly sponsored by the BFR.co, where if you want to buy your own BFR cuffs, access online BFR training programs, increase your own BFR knowledge with the accredited BFR.co course, or you want more information about this type of training, this is your one place to go. And I'm your host, Dr. Chris Gavilio. Welcome back to BFR Radio. I'm finally back and thanks for your patience in between episodes. I've actually just realized when I was putting this together, it's been a couple of months since the last episode. In short, I've devoted pretty much most of my spare time and energy to the launch of my new website and rebranding. In case you're unaware, I've rebranded to thebfr.co. My goal with thebfr.co or the BFR company is to have a one-stop shop for all things blood flow restriction training. So I still have my BFR cuffs. They're still branded as the Sports Rehab Tourniquet, but slowly over time, or once I renew my stock, they will be rebranded with my new logo. And I've also added a few new services to the website. And when I was building the website, and I had a friend help me put it together, I realized it was massive and My hats go off to other websites out there or other people out there that create these online training websites with shops with it because it's it's quite complex on on how it comes together. Anyway, the new services I'm actually going to provide through the website is the first is a whole host of downloadable BFR strength programs. And these are four-week programs suited to a host of different training goals. And so some of these may include if you're looking for some general strength for the upper, lower, or all body. And then I've branched out into accelerated rehab programs for pretty much most injuries. I've got a couple to go, including the hamstring protocol that I used with Olympian and decathlete Cedric Dubler where we used this program after he tore his hamstring, which was a grade two with some tendon involvement. And this was in the lead up to the Tokyo Olympics. This was three weeks out. And we were able to get him to 95% of his max sprinting speed within two weeks after he tore his hamstring initially. And then within three weeks, he competed and completed the decathlon. And that's 10 events at the Tokyo Olympics. Now, why 95% of his maximal sprinting speed is that that's what the head coach for Athletics Australia set him as his fitness test to get on the plane. Because obviously leaving from Australia to Tokyo in the middle of COVID as well, you know, we needed to make sure that he was going to get onto the plane and was going to give himself a chance. And normally these injuries, especially with track and field athletes, we're looking for a minimum of six weeks of rehab time before we're allowing them to then run at full pace. So we're actually able to do this within two weeks and within three weeks, he completed 10 events. And if you watch the Olympics and the decathlon in particular, Cedric Dubler was the guy who at the end of it was yelling at his teammate, Ash Maloney, spurring him on for a bronze medal. Now, by this time, Cedric, he was out of the medals. He'd unfortunately no height in the pole vault and you lose just too many points if you know height. But he kept going and kept competing and what a fantastic effort to do that over two days. Now, the other thing, Cedric Dubler, he is a fantastic vlogger and he has his own YouTube channels. He's actually about to launch 
that rehab period of time that we did in Cairns on his YouTube channel. So uh, once it's up, I'm going to make sure I'll let you know. And it's really worthwhile. It was amazing what we were able to do. And, and, you know, aside from having quality physio and good treatment and therapies, I actually think it was the BFR. I'm going to put myself out on the on a limb here and say that all the different pathway mechanisms and activations really accelerate his rehab. Anyway, so these programs that I've written, they, they have options that could be formed either in the gym or at home, whatever you're comfortable with. Because I know there's some people out there that don't want to go to a gym. So obviously with the gym, there's many more options and you could probably get better outcomes. However, on my website, you can also buy the bands which appear in the programs as well. And they're very affordable. You do need the blood flow restriction cuffs though, because that's where the magic happens with all the pathway activations got to do with that. And that's really why they are accelerated. So you have these improved muscle activations and in hypertrophies using really low loads, which is perfect when you're injured. Now, the second is access to me. That's online. Or if you live in Brisbane, Australia, you can actually get a hold of me and we can come and catch up and, and work on something that's specific for you. So a really tailored strength and conditioning program. And I've worked across a host of different sports, summer and winter Olympic sports, professional football. And look, I've worked with general public as well. And for me, it doesn't matter what your goals are, as long as you have a goal in mind, I can put something together that's specific for you. And my third major addition in my website is that my BFI education course is coming online. It's written. I've just got to finish filming it. So it's not far away. So the idea behind this is if for there's a lots of strength coaches, physiotherapists, therapists, people out there who want to learn more detail about BFR and improve their own knowledge and confidence when applying BFR to their athletes or clients. And this course I normally run face-to-face and I really want to make this accessible to everyone around the world. And therefore going online, I think is is really the way forward. You can do it in the comfort of your own home, in your own time, over a course of however long you want to take. So definitely stay tuned. And when you go to my website, just send me an email that you are interested. So when it is up and ready, I can email you specifically and you can get onto it straight away. So make sure you check out my website, which is all the W's dot the BFR.co. And if you're looking for more content through Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube, I've actually amalgamated all them under the same banner. If you're looking for more information, in particular, practical how to do videos, that's probably the best place where you can find that. And in case you don't know, I pretty much do everything myself. And I've had a lot of help with the website and I've got a graphic designer for my new logo. But aside from that, it's just me. So whether it's the content creation, podcasting, editing, putting anything that you see on social media, I'm doing it all myself. And, you know, in this cutthroat world of business, a little favor for me is if you are actually enjoying what I do within the world of BFR or even strength and conditioning, if you do have any kind of positive comments, retweets, or you know, you're working out with my BFR cuffs on or particularly doing a session that might be inspired from it, being able to post a photo and tagging myself, 
or at thebfr.co if you're on Instagram, for example. That would be really appreciated. Also, before I launch into today's episode, a few years ago, I used to run another podcast with another colleague, and it was called Snippet Sports Science. And this is where we reviewed and spoke to other sports science authors and summarized applied sports science articles. And this has actually been laying dormant for a few years, and I've been thinking about bringing it back. So that's a second podcast. My question to you is, would this be of interest? So let me know. If there is interest, it'll be my motivation to get it back going again. Now, refocusing back onto today's episode, if we just quickly think about the last few episodes, we focused around the concept of the hormones in relation to BFI. And the first two episodes looked at growth hormone, and the second one was insulin growth factor one, or IGF-1. Not only do these hormones have a performance benefit, but they're also critical for proper development and function of many major organ systems. Going even further for IGF-1, there's very strong evidence for neuroprotective effects in different situations, including aging. Therefore, these hormones play an important role for us to try and maximize, especially as we age. There are a few different anabolic hormones, and today's episode will focus on one of the more well-known hormones, and that is testosterone. The majority of this information comes from a paper called Acute and Chronic Testosterone Response to Blood Flow Restricted Exercise and appeared in the Journal of Hormone and Metabolic Research with the primary author, Jeremy Lenecki, who is one of the more prolific authors within the world of blood flow restriction training. This first section won't get heavy at all, I promise. It's just going to be a quick overview around testosterone. If we look at steroid hormones, they are familiar regulators of physiological processes. There are five groups of steroid hormones that are generally categorized according to their biological actions. These classes of steroid hormones are structurally similar and arise from a common series of pathways yet differ in their actions via one or more specific steroid hormone receptors. Testosterone is the primary circulating androgen in human males. The physiological roles of testosterone can be divided into two major categories. The first is those related to reproductive function and the development of male secondary sex characteristics, i.e. the androgenic effects, and secondly, those that pertain more generally to the stimulation of tissue growth and development, i.e. the anabolic effects. And that's probably what we traditionally think testosterone is all about. Testosterone has a circadian rhythm, which peaks in the morning upon wakening and gradually declines throughout the day in response to a combination of diurnal and metabolic inputs. It has been proposed that testosterone influences neuromuscular transmission as well as receptor numbers at the neuromuscular junction, suggesting that the effects of testosterone on athletic performance also involve changes outside skeletal muscle cells. Animal-based studies further highlight the role of testosterone in skeletal muscle excitation-contraction coupling in fast-twitch fibers. These findings support the theory that testosterone concentration plays a role in developing a high rate of force in muscular activity within a short contraction time. Testosterone concentration has been related to the neuromuscular expression of speed, power, and strength. Mood states such as competitiveness, drive, persistence, and contribution to winning are also associated with high testosterone concentrations, 
along with aggressive and dominant behaviors. I actually did my thesis on salivary testosterone and cortisol and looked at the responses around training and competition. And although we tend to think, or I think the general view within the general population is that we associate testosterone with people who go to the gym and get really big muscles. But the last little bit there around, it's related to the neuromuscular expression of speed, power, and strength, important, but also those mood states such as competitiveness, drive, persistence, and contribution to winning. One thing that we found is that certain responses that we had around training sessions actually were related to winning a few days later and that high levels of testosterone upon waking or pre-game were also related to winning rugby union game later that day, which is just absolutely fascinating. So what it's doing is it's showing there's this relationship that if you have high levels of testosterone, you have that high level of competitiveness and drive. And, you know, in particular, because I did within rugby union athletes, the aggressive and dominant behaviors, and we're thinking about those contact-based sports, it's an aggressive sport. Really fascinating hormonal biomarker, I guess you could say. And that's about as heavy as I'm going to get around what testosterone is. If you want to look for the deep physiological secretion of testosterone, there's lots of great reviews out there. So we're just going to really stick to the really interesting parts here. And when we look at the exercise-induced increase in testosterone, it seems to be dependent upon the amount of muscle mass trained, intensity and volume, nutritional intake, age, gender, training level, and is independent of the individual's absolute level of muscular strength. Therefore, it really is individual and specific to the person and what they're doing. To illustrate this, large muscle mass movements such as Olympic lifts, deadlifts, and jump squats have been shown in literature to produce substantial increases in testosterone compared with smaller muscle mass exercises such as bicep curls. Exercise programs implementing sufficient intensity and volume have been shown to produce substantial elevations in total testosterone concentrations. For example, 1 times 10 repetition squats at intensity of 80 to 85% of 1RM did not significantly elevate testosterone, whereas 6 sets of 10 repetitions at the same intensity did significantly increase testosterone. Furthermore, if repetitions are held constant, the protocol with higher loading tends to produce the greatest acute testosterone response. It is somewhat controversial whether or not the acute responses of testosterone to exercise affect overall strength and hypertrophy adaptations. For example, in one study, training legs after training arms resulted in greater increases in testosterone than training arms alone. However, these acute differences in testosterone concentrations did not result in greater hypertrophy of the arms. In this study, it was concluded that the acute changes in testosterone were not important for regulating hypertrophy. One possible criticism of this research is that the exercise order may not have been ideal for hypertrophy of the arms. Changes in blood flow during exercise are extremely critical for increasing protein synthesis and delivering nutrients and anabolic compounds to the working muscle. However, if legs are trained after arms, blood flow is restricted towards the legs. 
possibly negating any beneficial effects that testosterone might have. Another study was done with the exception of reversing the exercise order, training arms after legs. The theory was that training arms after legs would divert testosterone-rich blood directly towards the working arms. Kind of makes sense. As predicted, the arms when trained with legs achieved an increase in the part of the biceps with largest cross-sectional area, while no changes occurred in the arms when trained alone. Moreover, the arms trained with legs had greater relative improvement in bicep curl strength, as well as other favorable muscle adaptations compared to arms trained alone. One point to note here is that I'm actually discussing non-BFR strength training. We'll get to the BFR in a minute. Another interesting study when we look at the testosterone response with respect to resistance training, this is perhaps one of my favorite papers when we start thinking about what protocols are best for adaptations for people. In this paper, the study found large inter-individual variability in athletes' responsiveness to four resistance training protocols on four separate days. These training sessions included Firstly, a heavy session, which was a 3 by 5 repetition at 85% of 1RM. The second protocol was uh, called a light session. It was 5 by 15 at 55% of 1RM. The third was a moderately heavy protocol using 4 by 10 repetitions at 70% of 1RM. And the fourth protocol was an explosive power. 3 by 5 repetitions done explosively as possible at 40% of 1RM. The researchers found inter-individual variability was so substantial between protocols that roughly a quarter reached a peak in testosterone levels on each of the four separate protocols. In a separate follow-up study, these researchers divided the same athletes into two groups. The first group trained at the protocol which elicited the greatest testosterone response, and this was done for three weeks, while the other group trained at the protocol that had the lowest effect on testosterone. After three weeks, they crossed over and performed the opposite protocol for an additional three weeks. It was found that individuals training under the highest testosterone levels experienced greater body weight and strength gains. In contrast, 75% of the individuals training at low testosterone protocol experienced decrements in size and strength while the remaining 25% experienced no changes at all. Collectively, these findings appear to indicate that while acute changes in testosterone may not be necessarily for muscle growth or strength, that these changes do augment both of these responses. In addition, literature findings that trained individuals are able to increase testosterone to a greater extent immediately after a training session than untrained individuals suggest that greater elevations in this hormone may be a beneficial training adaptation. So I always think when people say the most optimal training protocol for muscle hypertrophy is 3 by 10, 3 by 12 repetitions. If you have a trained athlete, this may actually not be necessarily correct. They actually may respond more to a really heavy protocol three by five repetitions or, you know, around that five, four, three repetition at really high percentages of RM. And I start to then think about throwers in the world of track and field. 
and I used to throw a little bit when I was a bit younger and I did a couple of phases of hypertrophy, but I found when I was at my biggest and strongest, I rarely got up to eight to 10 repetitions and I was at a reasonable size. I got up to 130 kilos in body weight and I was reasonably strong. So, and I just loved that type of training and that or the explosive end. And if you would ask me to do four by 10 or, you know, five by 15 at 55% of one RM, oh, I would have hated that. So really interesting that myself, I would have, I guess, put myself into one or two of those protocols, but the other two, I would have just not enjoyed at all. And sometimes that enjoyment with training, I think is really important. That helps drive the responses that we get. Anyway, now I'm starting to get a little bit off, off track there. Now it's time to look at BFR exercise and testosterone response. In particular, these studies will focus more around resistance exercise as you would gather by the podcast today. And specifically, these first few acute studies were from that paper review that I mentioned that we're going through. And these investigated the testosterone response to low intensity exercise with BFR. And most of them actually demonstrate non-significant findings. And these findings are possibly attributed to the exercises selected by the researchers. As mentioned earlier, in non-BFR resistance training programs, larger muscle groups are associated with increases in testosterone. And in particular, a lot of BFR studies look at training smaller muscle groups, such as using bicep curls and calf raises, and as such as likely do not recruit enough muscle mass to augment testosterone. In a study where subjects performed four sets of knee extension or leg extension using the 75 rep protocol, that's first set at 30 reps, then three sets of 15, with BFR at 20% of 1RM, there was no significant changes in total testosterone response. Although testosterone was not increased, significant increases in muscle protein synthesis were observed. For the positive of BFR and testosterone response, the only evidence that lower body exercise with BFR can acutely increase total testosterone was in a study where subjects performed three sets of leg extensions, followed by three sets of hamstring curls. Slight variation to the protocol that was done over three sets, both exercises, where the first set was done 30 repetitions, and then set two and three was two sets to failure. In this study, testosterone was significantly increased post-exercise, but was not different from rest 15 minutes post-exercise. Therefore, once again, their testosterone significantly increased immediately post-exercise section, but 15 minutes after the session was completed, it had gone back to the same levels as before they started the exercise program. Now at this stage, it's not looking good for BFR and testosterone. But firstly, a lot of these studies take measures of other anabolic hormones. Typically, growth hormone in insulin growth factor 1 appear quite regularly. And if we remember that the first two episodes in this little mini-series was really positive around low-load BFR resistance exercise and the release of these two different anabolic hormones. And the previous example where subjects performed three sets of leg extension and hamstring curl, that was the 30 reps and two reps to failure, significant increases in growth hormone 
and insulin growth factor one were also observed. Therefore, in this study here, they looked at testosterone, growth hormone, and insulin growth factor one. So although these studies may not show significant increases in testosterone, there are other significant increases in other anabolic hormones. And before I go on, let's just mention that these are studies that are looking at group averages and significant changes that is academically driven. What I'm trying to say here is that within a group of subjects, individual results aren't really noted or taken into account. And from within this group, there are typically responders and non-responders. And the researchers are looking at significant changes according to the group averages. Again, this result doesn't take into account the individual changes. So, for example, a subject may actually start with a low testosterone concentration and actually achieve a substantial change or increase in testosterone concentration across the exercise protocol. But this subject's result is bundled into the whole group's results. And therefore, their individual result is somewhat lost within the whole of the group's average. There's actually some other studies that can show us some more promise for BFR and testosterone. You just actually have to go looking for them. And in particular, I want to mention three of them. The first one is called Improving Strength and Power in Trained Athletes with Three Weeks of Occlusion Training. The primary author is Professor Christian Cook. And if I would actually have a favorite author of all time of applied sports science articles, he is one. And I think he was the primary author for the earlier study that I mentioned about the four different resistance training protocols and having the individual response and training according to that. So look at anything around Christian Cook, and I think you'll find some amazing studies that that group has done. Looking specifically at this study, 20 male semi-professional rugby union athletes were randomized to a lower body BFR intervention. That is where an occlusion cuff was inflated to 180 millimeters of mercury worn intermittently on the proximal thigh. And there was also a control intervention that trained without occlusion in a crossover design. Experimental sessions were performed three times a week for three weeks with five sets of five repetitions of bench press, leg squat, and pull-ups performed at 70% of 1RM. When you look at it like that, it's something that we would give more typically to an athlete. They're squatting, benching, doing some pull-ups, doing five sets of five repetitions at 70% of 1RM. If we look at the results, greater improvements were observed in the BFR group compared against the control in the bench press, squat, 40 meter maximum sprint time and counter movement jump power performed on a force plate. Looking at hormones, greater exercise induced salivary testosterone responses were observed after inclusion intervention sessions compared with the non-occluded controls. Furthermore, in the BFR group in this study, significant associations were also observed between the mean acute salivary testosterone response to exercise and leg squat strength, bench press strength, and counter movement jump power production gain. What that is saying is that when you look at the response to a session, that is when you take a sample pre to sample post, you would have either a negative, no rise, or a positive response or a positive rise from pre to post. 
they were actually associated with the improvements that they saw. Similar to the earlier study where you had the four different resistance protocols, if you have a positive response to a session, you will have positive gains after a period of time, in this case, three weeks. Now, was it that the group that was training because of the rugby union players would have just loved a five by five? Or in this case, we would say it was actually the addition of the BFR cuffs helped to increase acute testosterone response. Therefore, they had a much more positive adaptation to the exercise protocol. In other words, adding your BFR is going to amplify your response to a session. One thing that I wanted to pull out from that paper in the discussion around the observed acute testosterone increases, and this was from the authors, they said that it is possible that the more intense nature of the exercise prescribed, that is 70% of 1RM, the intermittent nature of the occlusive stimulus, so what they did is that they decreased the uh, occlusive pressure in between sets and or the sampling method where they actually took saliva samples versus other studies which would typically take blood, contributed to the different results observed in this study. Although we're not going to go too deeply into this, saliva samples may provide more physiological relevant endocrine information as they empirically reflect the free steroid levels capable of interacting with hormone receptors and can exhibit a more dynamic response to exercise than the blood hormone concentrations. It is also reasonable to assume that the physiological phenomena associated with numerous large and rapid reperfusion cycles between exercise sets would differ from those experienced with a continuous occlusion protocol. These are some very good points that the authors wrote in the discussion that fit well within the general concepts of exercise-induced testosterone concentrations. The second study we're going to get out of the gym and onto the track is called Low Intensity Sprint Training with Blood Flow Restriction Improves 100 Meter Dash. And this appeared in the Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research. And both these papers I actually reviewed in earlier episodes of BFR Radio. In this here, the study compared the effects of practical BFR on leg muscles sprint training of the 100 meter dash time. And the participants performed 6 by 100 meter sprints at 60 to 70% of their maximum 100 meter sprint speed twice a week for six weeks, either with or without BFR. At the end of the study, 100 meter sprint time significantly decreased more in the BFR group than in the control group. The BFR group also reported significant increases in quad rectus femoris muscle thickness and the rate of force development measured in a leg press. Now, they did no other training during this study. They only sprinted twice. There was no strength training, nothing else. And they were around a 12-second for 100-meter sprinter. So not elite, but it's the concepts here that I really want you to take something out of it. If we look at some of the hormonal results, growth hormone, testosterone, and insulin growth factor was also collected at five different time points. This was pre, then at post one minute, 20 minutes, two hours, and 24 hours after the six sprints of the first training session. If we read the results, the authors reported that the testosterone concentrations in the study did not differ between groups. However, 
if you look at the results, there was actually a significant increase in testosterone concentrations 20 minutes post-sprint session. It was just that the increase was observed in both groups. That is, the BFR and the non-BFR control group both had a significant increase in testosterone concentrations. It was rather that the increase in both groups was not different from each other. And one last point to note is that hormones were only collected on the first sprint training session. It would have been interesting to see if after the six weeks of BFR sprint training, if the hormone response would have been any different due to the training adaptations. So in other words, at end of six weeks, was the BFR group having a much better response with the testosterone? And is that why they saw a significant increase in performance? Perhaps a missed opportunity in the study, but these kind of analysis costs a lot of money. And as such, budgets always play a role in what studies can and can't analyze. Anyway, that was just my two cents worth there. As I said, both of these papers I've reviewed previously on BFR Radio. So if you want to go and listen in detail, please go back and have a listen. And the last study is actually a case study that I did myself. This hasn't been published, but it was done with an elite track and field athlete that I worked with for quite some time. He is elite and a three-time Olympian. So although this isn't published, getting data on this level of athlete is not easy and not common. And this was done back in 2015. And what we were doing is that we were looking at using different exercise protocols as a method for hormonal priming prior to competition. Now, if you're into your applied sports science, hormonal priming is quite a hot topic at the moment. So we were looking at this back in 2015, so that's seven years ago. There are a few layers to this case study, but I really wanted to pick out three different exercise protocols and talk about them for a minute. The goal in this case study was actually to find an exercise protocol that not only assisted with an increase in testosterone acutely, but was also easy to perform when traveling for competitions, as sometimes access to gyms isn't easy or quality gyms is not easy. And in this case here, we were looking at an exercise protocol that could potentially performed very early in the morning and, and getting up early, getting access to gyms and travel and time are always against you. If we look at the three different protocols, the first protocol was a BFR body weight session. So this was using cuffs on the legs only. The athlete performed squats three by 15, push-ups three by eight, band face pulls three by 10, and band twists three by five. So legs, a push, a pull, and something core related. The second protocol was a BFR low load session. This was BFR on the lower body legs again. And the athlete did three by 15 squats at 40 kilos and shoulder press three by 10 at 35 kilos. The third protocol was just a normal gym session, non-BFR. And here the athlete did a hand clean with the main three sets, two on one, and then a bench press using the same two on one at approximately 75% of their 1RM, where all repetitions were done with maximal tent or maximum velocity of movement. And in this here, we actually monitor the velocity for motivation and also to ensure that he was lifting with intent. 
Of the three protocols, only the non-BFR gym protocol showed an increase in acute testosterone concentrations. We also collected samples six hours later, as this was actually relevant to when he would compete in relation to performing the priming session, or in other words, that was when he was going to go and compete. And in this here, the gym protocol, we saw an increase six hours later as well. So unfortunately, in this initial part of our case study, we didn't really see much promise for the BFR protocol. But because we had a better feel for how the athlete felt and the response, we decided to perform a second round of testing. Same exercise protocols, but with the BFR session, we emphasized the need for each repetition to be performed with intent on the concentric phase because there was no focus on that. Only on the gym protocol, we said, you want maximal intent or velocity. But we said, well, maybe we just need some more intensity with the BFR because he was just doing you know, the squats and the shoulder press at a normal controlled tempo. So really try and emphasize that intent uh, with the BFR. Also, the gym session, we moved to the afternoon as we realized that the athlete would have had issues accessing a gym at 5.30 in the morning of the competition. And this just wasn't going to be possible for a host of different reasons. So as we said there, the two BFR sessions were done early in the morning. So it could be done really easily. And the gym session was moved to the afternoon. If we look at the results for this part two of the, the case study, what we saw is that for the gym session is that from pre to post, there was actually a, a slight decrease in acute testosterone concentration. But six hours later and the next morning, testosterone concentrations were higher than pre-level. So a really positive thing here. The other interesting observation was that the BFR gym performed at 30% of 1RM with the increased focus on intent or intensity is that the testosterone increased immediately post-session and was elevated the next morning above the previous day's waking value. Therefore, a positive for BFR gym at 30% of 1RM. It was just that we needed to focus on that intent or intensity. And this highlighted a host of things, but there was some really simple takeaways in that Load and intensity are important considerations when looking at acute changes in testosterone, which is exactly what I mentioned at the start of the podcast. And the interesting thing here is in a purely reflection piece for this athlete when we discussed after the competition, he actually wasn't overly concerned about what his testosterone concentrations were, but rather it was more about how he felt during his competition. If the schedule and sessions leading to this competition led to a positive performance and he felt good, that is what was important to him. And so how does this potentially relate to you? Well, you may not be able to easily and regularly measure testosterone concentrations, but if you are training with BFR and you are achieving your goals and feeling good, then I think you're actually on the right track. And to be honest, it's the tangible benefits with BFR exercise that's important. And that may be increases in muscle size and strength, pain-free movement, or just feeling good after training. And if it enables you to improve or add to your quality of life, then that is what is important. That's where I'm going to end today's episode. My initial goal with this little mini-series was to review a few more hormones. However, I'm going to try and interview some awesome people using BFR. So if there's anyone that you want me to interview or you've got an awesome story yourself to tell, 
get in touch with me and let's get you on an episode. If this review of hormones and BFR training has sparked your own interest in starting an exercise regime, get in touch with me through my new website, which is thebfr.co or my socials. Previously, that was at Chris Gavilio, which is still up and running, but you can actually get in touch with me at thebfr.co or on Twitter, it's at thebfr underscore co because I don't allow .co. The Sports Rehab Tourniquet brand of BFR Cuffs can also be purchased from my website. And lastly, before I go, a couple of favors from me to you. If you know of someone who would benefit from this episode, please share it. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please give it a ratings on iTunes. Thanks for listening. See you in a couple of weeks. And remember to keep the pump.